I got to tell you some news that I heard just now that reminded me of news I heard earlier in the week. There are six people who have come to uh, put their faith in Christ this week through the ministries and through the people of this church. And I have to say, that, that is the most exciting thing for me. Isn't that great? And that's why we're here is because uh, God has changed our hearts so that we, we want to live for him and worship him. And, and uh, we know that there was a time in our life when we weren't there. And so if any of you are there or you're not there yet, that's okay. You're in a great place and we're so glad that you're here. We're doing a series called Cover to Cover. We're looking at the whole book of the, Bi- the, the whole Bible itself, all 66 books, and seeing how it's all one story that really centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Last week, you remember, we were talking about the dangers of living in hard times. So we were looking at that period in Israel's history where they moved from Mount Sinai into the Promised Land. And the temptation in the midst of hardship is to allow your feelings to redefine reality and recast God's character. And the struggle was and is that in the midst of hard times, you start to doubt that God really is good. You lose sight of his provisions today, and even if you are aware of them like they were, the manna, they no longer called it good, even though it was a miraculous daily provision. And they had a hard time believing that his promises for this great place, the promised land, flowing with milk and honey, they had a hard time believing those were good promises as well. Well, today, it's just kind of the whole flip side of the coin. It's not a period in Israel's history where it's marked by hard circumstances. It's actually a point where they're now in the promised land, that land flowing with milk and honey. They're living in those houses that they never built, drinking from the wells they never dug, eating from the vineyards that they never planted. And it's good times. It's prosperity. And the overarching theme and danger here is watch out. Be careful. In times of success and prosperity, be careful that you don't forget God. So last week, it's lose sight of his goodness. The antidote is keep thanking God, keep thanking him. Today, we look at the danger of living in prosperity. And that's the world that we live in. And it's the world that God knew his people were going to live in. And that's why he warned them before he ever got there in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. So open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 6. You'll find that on page 130 in the rack, in the Bible in the rack in front of you. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10, we hear this warning about prosperity and the temptation to forget about God. So in verse 10, God speaking through his prophet Moses says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, here it is, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. So that was the warning given to God's people before they entered into the promised land. So the question is, did they heed the warning? Turn forward a few pages to Judges chapter 2, verse 7, page 171. In Judges chapter 2, we read this, verse 7. 
the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They didn't heed the warning. In times of success, God's word says, be careful that you don't forget me. And we just got to ask the question, how does it go that a group of people, granted they were children, when they walked out of Egypt and the Egyptians handed them all the silver and gold, when they walked through the dry ground of the Red Sea, when they saw God miraculously leading them every day through the pillar of fire at night and the cloud at during the day when he saw miraculously providing for their needs. So the scripture says, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and their clothes and their shoes never wore out. There was always manna and quail to eat. There was always rock, even if water, even if it came flowing out of a rock, God was providing for them. How could it be that these people that not only walked through the Red Sea, but then crossed the Jordan and, and they saw Jericho's walls come tumbling down. They walked in and occupied the whole promised land. They're now living in these cities that they never built. How could it be that their children would grow up and it would be said of them that they didn't know God and they didn't know what he had done? They didn't know about his mighty acts. How does that happen? I mean, how, how, how could it happen that we would raise up a generation of children at Door Creek Church that would get to the age of 18 and say, I don't know who God is. And I don't have a clue of what he's done. And I don't know what he asks of me today. How, how, how could that happen? You go, that's impossible. It's not impossible. It's exactly what happened. In times of prosperity, they forget God. So what happened? The scriptures give us some clues. The first is we know that they weren't completely obedient. I mean, I think if we asked them, they'd say, we're following God with our whole hearts. But the text tells us that they weren't. In fact, the first verses in the book of Judges starts telling us time and time again how this tribe and that tribe was unable and unwilling to drive out the Canaanites that lived in the promised land. And God said, when you go in there, you got to completely get rid of them. You go, well, that's, that's pretty tough. What do you mean completely get rid of them? God said, these are wicked people They deserve my judgment. And when you drive them out and when you completely remove them and destroy them, it'll be my judgment upon them. He speaks of this specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 9. Just look at it on the screen here. Verse 5. He says of Israel, speaking through Moses, it's not because of your righteousness, Israel, or your integrity that you're going in to take possession of their land. It's not because you're better than them, he's saying, that I'm giving you this land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when the book of Judges opens, all of a sudden you realize that there's compromise going on. They haven't completely followed God's word. They 
were showing the signs of half-hearted obedience, partial obedience, which God was saying, that's not obedience. And what happens is when you're not walking with the Lord, not walking in all of his ways, then what happens is you stop talking about the Lord. And so there's compromise in their life before God, and slowly over time, the conversation about God grows to a hush silence. It's like somebody hit the mute button. They could talk about everything else but about God. And so at the end of the day, these people now are taking their cues, this generation, not from God and his word, but from the culture around them. And these people were a bunch of idolaters. And their detestable ways were such that they would even offer their own children as sacrifices to their gods. And over time, this generation who did not know God, did not know what he had done, forgot what he was asking him to be like as his holy people, they start just accommodating to culture. So they were just like culture. And God spoke about this very fact in Deuteronomy chapter 20 when he said, look, it's not just because I'm concerned about bringing judgment against these wicked people, but you've got to remove them because if they stay, they're going to pull your hearts back into idolatry. So verse 17 on the screen says, completely destroy them. And he mentions the Ites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. As the Lord your God has commanded you, otherwise, here it is, Otherwise, these people will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord. So, how does it happen? How does it happen that a generation grows up who doesn't know God, and their parents are the ones that saw God do the most amazing things? How does it happen? How does it happen that our kids could grow up in this place and one day say, I don't know God. I don't care about God. He's just totally uh, ancillary. It's not important. It happens by a generation who is half-hearted. There's hypocrisy. And it's because they're not walking, they're not talking. And the scriptures were clear in Deuteronomy 6. It said, moms and dads, you've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And, and that commandment's got to be on your heart. And when it's on your heart, then you impress it. You mark that on your children's heart. And the way you do it is you talk about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength all day long, from sunup to sundown, wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, you talk to your kids about it. You tie to symbols around your house so that they see that and say, Dad, what's, what's that about? Well, that's about reminding us to love God with all of our hearts. He said, even write it into the architecture of your homes, write it in over the doorposts that it might be written into the architecture of your children's hearts. That's what he said. But they stopped talking about it because they weren't walking the talk. That's how it happened. The sad legacy then of this generation is recorded then in the 350-year period of the book of Judges. And what you have in their legacy is this constant downward spiral where it just gets worse and worse. The epitaph for this period of history um, is that every man did that which was right in their own eyes. That was the epitaph that comes from Judges chapter 21, verse 25. And these judges 
are God's deliverer that he provides. They're military deliverers. They are also spiritual leaders, and they're also judges that settle legal disputes. And these leaders were going to come to deliver God's people because there's this constant repeating cycle that goes like this. God's people sin. They follow and worship the idols. God doesn't like that. That's not what he has in mind for his chosen people. And so he raises up an oppressive nation and he brings judgment upon them through this oppressive nation. The response was typical each and every time. The people cry out to God. They haven't thought about him at all until life's hard. Now they're crying out to God, God, save us, deliver us from these wicked people that are tormenting us. And God in his mercy hears their cry. He raises up a deliverer. The deliverer, the judge, brings victory over the enemies. There's peace in the land. And that peace and prosperity brings about spiritual amnesia again. They forget God and they go back to serving the idols. And it repeats and it repeats and it repeats. And it gets worse and worse so that when you get to the last story in the book of Judges, it's almost so heinous that a preacher couldn't preach it in a modern audience today because it's such an awful debauched story. That's, that's the legacy that happened because there was a generation that grew up who didn't know God and didn't know the things of God, didn't know what God was asking of them as his holy people. And so everyone is doing that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. They were taking their cues from their hearts. They were taking their cues from the people living around them. They didn't know what God was saying. They didn't know what God was asking. They forgot what he'd done. Have you ever thought about what historians will write? Church historians. What they'll write as the epitaph of our day? Here's what I hope. I hope they'll say they, they took the Great Commission serious. They were intentionally making disciples of Jesus Christ who penetrate the world through the power of the Spirit to the glory of God. They loved Christ and they made the love of Christ known to everyone they met. They walked out what they talked and it was a contagion. People were coming and following Christ. That's my hope for us here. It's the only epitaph we have control over is the one here at Door Creek, our families. But I'm wondering if it won't be another epitaph. They tried to serve two masters, God and money. I'd say materialism is the greatest danger that the church in America, let's, let's make it more personal. It's the greatest danger to Door Creek is our affluence. You go, wait a minute, we're not that, yeah, we are. We live in Dane County. We live in the wealthiest country in the entire world. All you need to do to get it straight is get on the plane last night with Bob, Pastor Goodsell, as he's heading down to Guatemala. You get it real quick. But see, what we tend to do is we start to think about places like Jupiter Island. Do you know there's 600 people that live on Jupiter Island and those 600 people make up of 10% of America's wealth? (laughs) Whoa, dog, that is wealthy. And if you're like me, you're going... I'm not rich, they're rich. Because we always compare ourselves up the ladder. But guess what? We're all rich. And the danger is, 
that in our riches, we don't think that we need God. Jesus said, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not impossible, but it's hard because we start becoming satisfied like they were with the things they eat, with the stuff that we have. And one of the things we got to remember is that the stuff that we have and enjoy is a spiritual liability. It's a great danger. It's a great danger. Well, if the book of Judges ends with that epitaph, every man did that which is right in his own eyes, the book of Ruth, which is recorded in that same period of the Judges, is completely different. Here we meet two people who did that which was right in God's eyes, and it's a refreshing breath of fresh air. We go, ah, this is what it looks like to live for God in the midst of God's people who've totally chucked God. And here we meet Ruth. She's a widow from Moab who's traveled back with her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to Bethlehem, where Naomi was from. And this Moabitess woman, Ruth, meets a distant relative of Naomi, and through marriage, one of her distant relatives named Boaz. Boaz is the grandson of Rahab the prostitute back in Jericho, the Canaanite woman, the idolater, who hid the spies when they went in to scout the land and was rewarded by her faith so that when the walls of Jericho fell down, because she believed God's word through the spies and hung out the gold, the the crimson uh, scarlet cord, she and her whole family were saved. Her grandson is Boaz. He's not taking his cues from the world, from culture, but he is very mindful of God's word. And in God's word, there were provisions there for a destitute widow like Ruth, that one distant relative would be called her kinsman redeemer, would take care of her. And he becomes her kinsman redeemer as he marries her and provides and protects for her. It's this beautiful love story that reminds us again, God continues to use the unlikely people to carry forward his purposes. I mean, a grandson of a prostitute and a Moabitess, I mean, she has no connection to God's people. She's a complete outsider. God surprises us again. We also are reminded that God has given us a great picture of what he's done for us in Christ through what Boaz did for Ruth. Because you know what? Most of us here are not of Jewish descent, we're outsiders. And God in his grace said, I'm going to bless all the nations through you, Abraham, so that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And she's a result of that promise, and we are too. And Boaz points forward to Christ, the kinsman redeemer who takes us in and becomes the one who marries us and provides for us and covers us with his garments of righteousness. It's this beautiful picture. Beautiful picture during the period of the sad history of the judges. And the amazing thing is, God's saving purposes are going forward through these two, Boaz and Ruth, because they become the great-grandparents to none other than King David. And when you read about Jesus' genealogy, Ruth and Boaz, they're part of the story. They're part of God's story, his plan of rescuing a people to himself through Christ. They're part of it. We're part of it through them. What's this great story? And so then Ruth becomes this key transition book that moves us from the period of the judges into the period of the kings. So we then turn the page and we get to Samuel. First and second Samuel, first and second kings, originally one book. 
now divided into four. First and second Chronicles, written later during the exile, it's chronicling the events of the kings, focusing primarily on King David, King Solomon, the building of the temple. The opening pages of Samuel introduces us to this young boy whose mother Hannah was barren, and she longs for a son and makes a deal with God. God, give me a son and I'll give him back to you. So he's serving there in God's place in Shiloh under Eli, the priest, the high priest. And it says that in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. People didn't hear from God. Maybe it has something to do with every man doing that which is right in their own eyes. They didn't seem to give a rip about God. God wasn't doing a lot of talking. But he starts to do a lot more talking through this young boy named Samuel, whose name means... The Lord listens. And Samuel, the scriptures say, did not let a word of the Lord drop to the ground. He was faithful in communicating all that God said to him. And he's this judge, he's the last judge, who's also a prophet, who speaks for God. At the end of Samuel's life, there's a crisis. Because Samuel's life, in some ways, parallels his mentor, Eli's life. Eli's two sons were wicked. They were sleeping with women at the tabernacle. Samuel's sons were wicked. They were dishonest in their dealings with God's people as they brought the sacrifices. They were greedy. They weren't just. They weren't righteous. And so there's a crisis of leadership when the people think, my goodness, Samuel's about to die. Who's going to lead us? And so we read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 8. Page 195, verses 5 through 7. So the leaders come to Samuel, and they said to him in verse 5, Samuel, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Boy, do you you hear that? Such as all the other nations have. Do you see how cultures dictating their desires? Give us a God, they said to Aaron in Exodus 32, who will go out before us. And he made gods, that golden calf, fashioned just like what? Just like the Egyptian God. Give us a king like all the other nations, worshiping the gods of all the other nations. You see that time and time again in this period. But when they said, verse 6, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. Samuel's all bummed out because he thinks it's about him. God says, Samuel, it's not about you. They're turning their back on me, not on you. They're rejecting me as king. And we're surprised to read then that God says, go ahead and give them what they asked for. Give them a king. And so we read on that Saul is anointed as king, and man, does he fit the part. The scriptures say he's head and shoulders above all the rest. That's what we're looking for, Samuel. Way to go, Samuel. A king like that's going to inspire confidence in the army and fear in the enemy. That's the kind of king that we want. That's the kind of king we need. He fit the part perfectly. There's one thing wrong. He didn't have the right heart. He fit the part, but didn't have the heart. He didn't fully obey God's word. 
And God's word was clear. In fact, God anticipated this request of a king. And we know from all of scripture that God's saving purposes had a king in mind. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, there were specific laws for the king. And it went like this. Law number one, king, get a pen and get a scroll and write this down. Don't have a scribe write it down. You write it down in your own hand so you don't forget it. And by the way, you read this throughout all the days of your life, what you're about to write down. Number one, don't acquire a lot of horses. Implied there is, you're going to start trusting in your horses and chariots. I don't want you to do that. God says, I want you to trust in me, not in your big army. Rule number two, don't acquire a lot of wives. Those wives are going to lead your heart astray. Don't do that. Rule number three, don't acquire a lot of money, silver and gold. You're going to start to trust in your riches. Maybe you can buy an army. Rule number four, don't ever lead my people back into Egypt. We're out of there for good. Don't go back there. Rule number five, fear me, obey me, keep all my commands. That was the rule. That was the law for the kings. And when Saul comes to the crown and to the throne, he starts well, but it's a brief good start. And very early on, we see that he's disobedient. So we read this in 1 Samuel 15, verse 23. Samuel says to him, Saul, because you've rejected the word of the Lord... He has rejected you as king. You're out. It didn't take very long. God says, I'm going to take my spirit from you. I'm going to remove you from the throne. I'm going to anoint someone else as king. Enter King David. Here's the man who doesn't fit the part, but he's got the right heart. All you have to do to see that it doesn't fit the part is go back to the story of when he's anointed. God says to Samuel, Samuel, go to Jesse's house and anoint one of his sons. I'll tell you who. You anoint one of his sons as the next king. So Samuel says, hey, Jesse, I'm coming to your house for dinner tonight. It's going to be great. We're going to have a party, and I'm going to anoint one of your sons the next king. Jesse's going, wow, this is exciting. Honey, kill the fatted calf. We're having a party tonight. He gets all his boys there, and he brings forth Eliab. Here's my number one son, Eliab. Go ahead, Samuel, anoint him as king. And Samuel's thinking, he looks, he looks the part. I bet you he's the guy. God says, he's not the guy. It's not him. Samuel says, sorry, Eliab, it's not you. Who's next? Samuel brings up his next son, his next son, his next son, his next son. He gets out of sons, and Samuel's scratching his head. He's going, Jesse, something's wrong here. God's not told me to anoint any one of these sons. Is there any chance one of your sons is missing? I can just see it. Jesse's, Jesse's got to just start getting blushed and embarrassed. He's going, oh my goodness. Yeah, I got another son, the youngest. He's just kind of a scrawny little red, redhead, freckle-faced kid. He's, he's out with the sheep. He's just a shepherd. He's a good shepherd. He's pretty good on the loot too. I hadn't even thought about him. Could he be king? Yeah, go get him. He brings him in and God says, he's the guy. He didn't look the part, but he had the right heart. And God says to us, as he said to Samuel back then in 1 Samuel 16, 7, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And the ongoing descriptive of David's heart is it was a heart after God. 
And a heart after God is not one that always perfectly does God's will. We'll see that clearly in David. But it's a heart that's always pursuing God even after he sinned greatly. So David's anointed as king, but it takes a long time before he gets the crown. I mean, this happens early in the reign of Saul, but Saul, we read in scriptures, reigns 40 years. And David comes to the, to the forefront from this obscure shepherd boy, Jesse's youngest son who nobody knows about, to the guy who defeats Goliath, to the one who the women are singing the songs. Saul has slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands. He's the king's son, Jonathan's best friend. And Saul is furiously jealous of him. He tries to kill him. He chases him down like a wild animal, but God protects him several times. David could have seized the throne, but he doesn't. He waits for God to give it to him. Saul dies. David gets the throne. He's crowned king. The first thing he does is he brings the Ark of the Covenant, the resting place of God's presence, and he says, I want him in the royal city in Jerusalem. And the next thing he does is The king needs a better house. I'm building myself a palace. And he builds this luxurious cedar palace. And then he's feeling guilty. He says, God, I live in this great palace and you're stuck in the tent, the tabernacle. It's not right. I'm going to build you a great house. God says, thanks, David, but you don't need to build me a house. Fact is, your son Solomon's going to build me that house, the temple. But here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to build you a house. No, God, you don't understand. I just built a house. It's the palace. It's beautiful, isn't it? No, not that kind of house. I'm going to build you an eternal dynasty. So turn your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we'll read about the promise that God made to David, and you're going to hear the overtones of the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. And so whenever you hear me say, ding, that's going to be, oh yeah, that should be ringing in our ears. That's a promise that he also made to Abraham. So we read, starting in verse 9 of 2 Samuel 7, page 219. God's saying, David, I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great. Ding! Like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place. Ding! For my people. Down in verse 12. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body. Ding! And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Then look at David's response in verse 24, his prayer back to God. David says, God, you have established your people Israel as your very own forever. And you, O Lord, have become their God. Ding! There it is. Those promises of a great name, a great place offspring from your own body, a kingdom, kings coming from you. This whole idea of the covenant promise, I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. But what's new here in the promise to David is this whole aspect of an eternal throne, this kingdom with its king that lasts forever. That's what's new. 
And so David comes to the throne and he's reigning, we're told, in chapter 8, verse 15, in righteousness and justice. He's doing the right thing for the people before God. He's brought lasting peace. He's at the pinnacle of his career. And we note that because it's at that very point that he falls. In times of success, be careful. In times of prosperity, be careful that you don't forget God. And boy, did he forget God the night he was on the roof and he saw Bathsheba bathing and he lost his senses. He committed complete temporary insanity. And he has an adulterous affair and she conceives. When he finds out she's pregnant, he tries to cover up by bringing her soldier husband back from the battle to sleep with her so that he might think it was his child. He wouldn't do that. And so David has him killed in battle. And it's a watershed event in his life that didn't happen when he was running for his life as a crazed, like a crazed animal being hunted by this lunatic king. It didn't happen in hardship. It happened in the height of his success when his guard was down. And his life was never the same. I want the children to listen to me really close right now. The rest of you, you listen as well. Here's a really important thing that's consistently taught in the Bible. That God has given us ability to make choices. We're not robots. We can choose to follow his word and his ways or we can choose to not do that. And God said there's consequences that are going to be consistent all the time. When you follow my ways, when you choose life, as, as Moses said last week, you will find blessing. It'll go well with you. When you don't and you go your own way and disobey me and disregard my word, my law, then it's not going to go well for you. It's going to bring curses. And what you need to know is David was really sorry. He asked God's forgiveness. We read about that in Psalm 32, Psalm 51, and he found the forgiveness of God. That's why he's got a heart after God because even when he blew it big time, he kept pursuing God asking for forgiveness. But here's the thing. He was forgiven, but the consequences of his sin weren't erased. They're real. They go on. And so what happens next in his life is one tragic thing after another. The baby dies. His daughter Tamar is raped by her half-brother, his son, Amnon. Absalom kills Amnon. Absalom is also David's son, Tamar's brother. Absalom then leads a conspiracy against his own father, driving David from the throne in fear that he is going to be killed in this coup. Absalom is later killed by David's general, Joab. And it just goes down and down and down, and it's never the same from that faithful, fateful night recorded in 2 Samuel 11. We may be forgiven, but the consequences of sin are real and they're bad. They're bad. And so what we said last week, when that exit sign's flashing in times of temptation, it's God's way out, and we got to run out because it's real. And you can learn it two ways. You can learn it by believing it's true, or you can learn it by knowing it's true as you suffer the consequences of your sin. 
But the scriptures don't just stop there. They also tell us that God's mercies run alongside of even those hard circumstances, the consequences of our sin. They're unrelenting, his mercies. They have no limit. They're new every day. They chase us through all of life, the ups and downs. You'll never outrun God's mercy no matter what you've done. And so we know what happens with David. His son Solomon, he ends up building the temple. And it's the golden age of Israel. Never have the borders pushed out as far. Never has the coffers been so full. People are coming from all around like the Queen of Sheba to hear the wisdom of this great man who was the wisest man that ever lived save Christ. They, they, they wanted to gawk at the splendor of his kingdom. It's said in those days of Solomon that silver was as common as rocks. And it was at the height of his kingdom, in the height of Israel's kingdom, that the wheels again start to come off. Times of success. Be careful. We see the first clue as he starts to amass horses, followed up by his amassing of this huge harem, 700 wives, 300 women, and he too falls away from God. God judges him, and from that point on, the kingdom's divided. The 10 tribes in the north, the northern kingdom. The two tribes in the south, the southern kingdom. The history of the kings in the north is always, always bad. You never get confused by knowing, was the king in the north good or bad? They're all bad. They're all bad. I liked that when I was studying the kings in seminary. That was easy for me to remember. In the southern kingdom, it was a little trickier. It's a mixed bag. You got guys like Hezekiah and Josiah that lead these beautiful revivals and reforms. It's a mixed bag of good and bad. But at the end of the day of the kings, we see that God's people end up in exile. We'll talk about that in two weeks. And so God's people have cried out for a king. They've gotten a king of their own choosing who wasn't the one that had the right heart. Then they got the one that had the right heart. But even the one who had a heart after God, he wasn't wasn't perfect. And so from this point on in the history of God's people, they're longing for this promised eternal king that would come and bring lasting righteousness and justice, that would bring lasting peace, that would lead God's people rightly under God. They're longing for that king. And so when you start turning the pages, you start reading about this king. He's the anointed one, God's son in Psalm chapter 2. He is the one who's going to rule over all the nations of the world. He's the one in, in, uh, in Psalm 22 who's going to be afflicted, this anointed one. He's going to be afflicted. He's going to suffer. You read Psalm 22, if you haven't, you go, this is unbelievable. How could this be written a thousand years before Christ was ever crucified? And it starts talking about all the things that happened the day that Jesus was crucified. And you go back to Psalm 16, you find out that this one, this anointed one, God is not going to abandon to the grave. He's going to come up from the grave. It's talking about his resurrection. Isaiah talks about him. In chapter 9, verse 6, he's going to have the government of God resting on his shoulder. He's going to be the Prince of Peace, the wonderful counselor, the everlasting God, the mighty God and everlasting Father. And then when we turn to the New Testament, We find out that Jesus is hailed as this anointed king when he's riding into Jerusalem on the donkey on Palm Sunday. What are they doing? They're putting out their garments. They're putting down the palm branches and they're shouting, Hail the king! Blessed is he, the king, who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they recognized him as. 
when he hung on a cross, Pilate had a sign put up over his head and it said this, King of the Jews. The religious leader said, no, 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 no. He's not our king. He says he's the king of the Jews. Pilate said, enough. I've heard enough of you guys. It stands as written and he wrote better than he knew. He was the anointed king of the Jewish people. And when Peter preached his sermon in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit came down on his followers and they started to tell people about God and his mighty acts, he said, this man Jesus, the one from Nazareth, Joseph and Mary's son, the one that you crucified on a cross, he is both Lord and Christ. He's the one. And it's just a good reminder that Jesus Christ is not Jesus' first name and his last name. Christ is not the equivalent of my fair. Jesus Christ, Christ is his title, and it means anointed one. It's the Greek equivalent of Meshua, Messiah, the anointed one who's set apart to serve God and his people as king. Jesus is the one. That's what Peter preached on that day. And Paul says in Philippians 2 that when Jesus comes back to this earth and the king of kings lands on the Mount of Olives, that every knee and every tongue is going to bow and confess that he's the king, that he's Lord. And Revelation 19 says that on his side are written the words, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's hailed forever as such. So I don't know about you, but this is the king that God's people have been longing for. This is the kingdom that we long for. Jesus in the word tells us that when he comes back, the kingdom that he's going to set up is going to be a kingdom when there's no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more sickness, no cancer, no death. There's not going to be slander. There's not going to be rape. There's not going to be murder. There's not going to be all the stuff that happens in our world that we go, it's not right. He's going to establish his perfect kingdom. And we ought to long for that day and long for that king. And Jesus says, I'm coming back. I'm coming back to establish it here on earth. And I'm coming for all those who believe that I'm the king. So Psalm 2 says at the end of that psalm, kiss the king, kiss the king, embrace him. And if you've never done that, the way you embrace the king is you believe that Jesus is God's promised savior who died on the cross for you and for me. Embrace him. Maybe for the first time today. Maybe it's been a long time. You've drifted off. You've been slip sliding away. Maybe it's how you woke up this morning, blessing him with your whole heart. Embrace the son. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that you're coming back and you said it could be any day and we long for that day and yet we know that every day that you don't come back, it's because you're extending your gracious forgiveness to people who desperately need it. So I pray that there isn't anybody here this morning who goes to bed without understanding anew or again of your great love for them in the giving of your son who came to die, who rose again and lives that we might live today in fullness and joy and forevermore in your presence. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.